the scripture is going to be in Acts chapter 3, um, beginning at verse 1. I'm in the ESV version. Um, you can power on your tablet or any inferior non-Apple device you have um, and meet me in Acts chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. And it reads, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Amen. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Come now, Lord, I pray. I pray, Lord, that you would love someone with my words. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As I remember uh, being in youth ministry uh, back in the summer of 2003, I remember our church took a trip to a theme park in Jersey in August of that summer. Um, and we were going to this theme park, and they had all the roller coasters and rides. And whenever I go to a theme park, I do the same thing every time. I'm the guy that carries purses and eats hot dogs. Um, I just feel like God didn't intend for me to leave the earth, so I just stayed there where the fullness is. And, and I watched while everybody got on different rides, and, you know, they got on the water rides, they got on the roller coaster. And everyone was having a really good time. And I remember towards the evening time, uh, what started out as a fun day, turned into a terror when the power went completely out at this theme park. And we had members of our church and even youth ministry who were on roller coasters that were stuck in midair. I mean, there was even one roller coaster where it inverts people like Superman, and they were stuck on this loop for hours. And it turns out that there was a power outage from Ontario, Canada, all the way down to the Northeast, all the way into the Midwest. And for hours, from like 4 o'clock on, there's no power at this theme park. And people are stuck on the roller coaster. It's a horrible time for me to say, I told you so. But it's scary, nonetheless, to see people suspended in the air on a roller coaster who can't get off. And I remember what was fear and terror turned into rage and anger because people began to say, how could you build a theme park so big, so vast, and not have a power generator as backup. And people began to complain and get very angry. And, and as I think about that, I think about where we are today in America, because we are living in a culture and a society that is experiencing a moral blackout, that our culture is decaying in such a way, and, and people are saying, there's no power, there's no hope, there, you know, you just got to save your own, you just got to protect yourself. I even hear believers that talk like that. The best thing you can do is just wait for your stimulus and just hoard everything you can, then sit on the can and care for yourself. But I want to let you know that if you are a believer, 
If you're a Christian, you've been born into a living hope that God's power backup is the church. That it is God himself that has ordained that the proverbial lights come out so that his light can shine. And so if you're a believer, understand today that God has a purpose for you and I in this culture right now. This is your hour. This is your place. This is your moment in history for the church to be the church to shine and to give hope. Uh, thank you. I know that we're in a Baptist church in the Northeast, but amens are okay. It's not Southern Baptist. It's not North Philly Baptist. But you can just nod your head and say amen. I can't see behind the mask, but I'm assuming that you're smiling or saying amen or something. I'm just going to read into what you're saying. And, and, and so think of it this way. If you're a believer, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, it means this. You have experienced the healing power of Christ the Messiah. It means that you are being healed by Christ the Messiah, and that you share in the hope of his healing and restoration for the world. That everything outside of you is influenced by what has happened inside of you. The hope that we have is not just something we keep to ourselves and we say, okay, now I'm saved and I'm just going to be saved till Jesus comes. Instead, we are transformed in such a way that it makes a difference to everyone outside of us. Not just our household, but our neighborhood. Not just our neighborhood, but the communities, the city, the state. Everything should be hearing and seeing the church in motion because we are animated by a great hope. The worst thing that can happen, though, is when we get to the point as Christians, as believers, when we live without hope. Because the only option to not having hope is to be numb and to be callous. It's to be apathetic. It's to have tunnel vision and say the best I can do is care for myself as though God has not given us enough grace to serve other people. And so I believe that, that Luke, the writer of our text, um, who wrote Luke as we've been going through as a church, but also the book of Acts, he, he, he wrote this in a sense that, yes, Acts is a book of history when we think of the genre of Scripture, but it's also an apologetic about hope. It is apologetic saying that Jesus Christ not just uh, um, lived perfectly obedient to, to the law, that he died a sinless death, that he was raised again, but now he reigns and lives through the Spirit in the church. Luke is trying to show us that Jesus is alive and still operating in the world. Um, there's even a ministry, a network called Acts 29. They operate off the belief that we are the continuation of Acts, because there's only 28 chapters in Acts, so if it's 29, it's you. i you learned something. Tweet that. Um, but, but it is to say that there is hope. And the Jews at the time in Israel needed hope. Those who were Gentiles needed hope. Why? Because they were confused about what was going on. Um, if you know the scripture that there was a prophecy that the Messiah would come and he would repeal the fivefold damage of sin. If you read the book of Isaiah, it says in Isaiah 61 that the Messiah would come and he would, he would say and do this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And if you know your scripture or if you've been listening to Pastor Rob, in Luke chapter 4, uh, Jesus came in and he grabbed the scroll of Isaiah and he opened up to this and he read verse 1 and part of verse 2. And he said to the people in the synagogue, um, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus was letting them know that he is, was, and shall be the Messiah to Israel. But here's the hard thing. How do you deal with a God that promises to save and restore everything when everything still looks broken? How do you live a life of faith 
when the scripture says one thing, but what they were experiencing is another. And so here's just the big idea that I want to share with you. Uh, the big idea is this. Because the risen Christ is at work through his spirit in the church, we must live as vessels of living hope and abiding power. Because the risen Christ is at work through his spirit in the church, we must live as vessels of living hope and abiding power. I just want to answer this question during our time. How does God work in his church? You could apply that to Grace City or any gospel church. How does God work in his church to bring hope to the city? Uh, firstly, when I look at verses 1 through 3, I see that God saves and sanctifies the broken to reach the broken. God saves and sanctifies broken people to reach broken people. If God will ever use you, it is not because you are sufficient or that you got it all together, but it's because you are dead in sins and trespasses, that you are broken in more ways than one. He has saved you to himself, sanctified you for his work, and sent you back into the world and intends to use you. Um, just looking at verse 1, you see uh, repeated a couple times, it says, now Peter and John, in verse 1, they were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Um, that's the ninth hour, which in their time would have been 3 p.m., for us, we count time from midnight. From them, for them, they would have been counting from 6 a.m. But over and over, you see in, in Acts, Peter and John being mentioned together. Uh, we're used to a lot of other dynamic duos in Scripture. We're used to, you know, Paul and Barnabas. At some point, Paul and Luke. We're, we're used to Paul and Timothy. But, but the, the original duo of Peter and John is significant. Here's why. If you know your Bible, you know Peter and John were nothing alike. Peter had a big mouth. Peter was probably very charismatic. Uh, Peter was a fisherman. He was quick to, to fight. If you know the story about the garden, he's in Gethsemane, and, you know, they come to arrest Peter, and Peter's kind of thuggish. He pulls out a knife, cuts off Malchus's ear. You know, John is totally something different. He's more of a preppy. You know, he's not like Peter. Um, and, and yet, Peter, we know, is the one who denies Jesus three times. He's the one who calls down a curse upon himself when Jesus is being arrested and, and tried, and he says, I don't know the man. Historians tell us that it is believed that John, the apostle of love, is the one who won out to Peter to restore him. So we know that in Scripture, Jesus does go to Peter. He does restore him, but there is a human component to Peter. Let me put it another way. Peter's restoration is a God thing and a church thing. Peter is being helped along by John, who comes alongside him, and you see these two people who, if it wasn't up for Jesus, they would not be traveling together. The beauty of the church is we are a community of people who are so diverse, so different. If it wasn't for Jesus, we wouldn't be hanging out. And, and yet, Peter is here being sanctified by the work of the Spirit and the community of the church. If you read Acts chapter 2, you see when the Spirit came that the believers had all things in common, that, that they're living in this compassionate community, and Peter and John are a product of that, and now God has set them apart to use them to reach this lame beggar. He has sanctified the broken to reach the broken. They come across this man at the gate called Beautiful. It says he's been lame since birth. He wasn't able to carry himself, so he had people who would bring him to the temple every day who would pick him up and leave him there so that he could ask alms. 
Um, there was some belief that some people even thought there was a salvation value that if you gave to the poor, it would earn you some type of favor with God. And so it's just like if you go down Broad Street, you go down a residential street, there's not many people begging. But if you go by City Hall, you go by a store, you go by an arcade, there's people out there because they know people are coming in. So the gate called Beautiful is this huge gate. They say it would take about 20 people to, to open up uh, the doors of this gate. And here's where this man is. And Peter and John see him. And you'll notice, like if you read verse 3, it says, seeing Peter and John. And then in verse 4, it says, Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. I think Luke is trying to show us that what's going on is not a Peter thing, but a church thing. That is a product of these two men, not just one man. And they direct their gaze at him. But, but first, we need to dive deeper into this man because he was lame in a way that many people around us are lame. Not just physically, because if you look at it, he, he was physically lame. But how about mentally and emotionally? All his life, he never knew what it was like to walk. Economically, he was lame. He never knew what it was like to, have, to work for a day and make his own living. He didn't know what it was like to feel like a man in society. I would submit to you that in all our communities, there are people today who are lame and need the redemptive work of the gospel in their life. That there are people that God has intended for us to touch and to reach in such a way that they are never the same when they meet Jesus. And so he's there and, 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 and he's, he's experiencing this interaction with, with Peter and John. He's looking to receive something from them, but God intends to do something different. I want to say this. You need to have hope that God can use you, but you also need to have hope that God is going to do more than just leave things the way they are and make it a little bit better. I think sometimes one of the issues we have with our sin is that we look at people based on where they are and not who they could be in Christ. And so we begin to see people based on the actions they do. If you go to Kensington, you see a streetwalker, you see a junkie, you see a single mom, you see certain people and you just think of them as where they are, not based on what God can do in their life. I would submit to you, we need to pray and ask God to give us a sanctified imagination where we can treat people based on their potential and not where they are right now. Because if there's anyone that's going to do it, it's the church. It's not going to be Congress. It's not going to be the tribes of the world. It's not going to be a hashtag that gets God's glory for creating change. And so he, 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 he calls upon them to give alms, but they come to give them something different. The church is at work in Jerusalem just as we are to be at work. I asked myself when I read this, why don't we see ourselves as people who God has, has sanctified and set apart for this? Here's two things that I got as I was meditating on this text. Number one, it's easy to, to think on the gospel and think of how big and how great God is and totally forget about how you have to see yourself differently when you come to Christ. That yes, you were dead in sins, but now you're alive to God. Yes, you were a slave to sin, but now you are a slave to righteousness. That, that now you have to see that you have potential in Christ, that you have gifting in Christ, you have calling in Christ. I would say, parents, make sure that you pour into your kids to understand that they are here for a purpose. Don't just watch CNN or Fox News or whatever you watch. I'm not endorsing either. Um, but watch and don't instill fear in your children let them know that just like esther that they were born for a moment such as this that god has a calling for them as a church it is important to affirm the gifts and callings you see in other people one of the things i love about pastor rob is when i had been here for a while and i was like hey man i want to go help this church plan in west philly he was just like hey how can i support you i wasn't used to that in the church i'm used to churches that say you can't leave us or you're just not saved anymore like you just went out from us because you were not of us i've literally heard someone 
quote that about me before. And, and, and you want to be in a place where you can send people out to use their gifts. Listen, today is a great day to renew your commitment to community. Don't look for pastors to constantly come to you to find ways to be community. Do that on your own. Look for the people who didn't show up. Look for the people you haven't heard from in a while. Ask them how they are. Set up a Zoom for yourself. It's free, I think, to Zoom if it's one-to-one, -one, but then you got to pay $14 for the other one. I've, I've done it. You can use mine if you want. But, but we are to fellowship with one another so that we can be effective at being the church. I, I want to illustrate something. A couple years ago, I went to a friend of mine's church. He was being installed as pastor. And it was great, and I go, and this was a church that had been losing members for a while. Most of the congregation was older. This is a church not near here, so I could talk about it. Um, so I went, and it was great. And then after, one of the elders of the church came and talked to me. And it's great. I see he's a great man, much older man. Uh, he was a white male. And he came up to me, and he asked me a couple questions. And then he says to me, um, so listen, we don't have many colored people here. We got a colored boy over here named Darnell. You should go over and introduce yourself to him. Um, this is the only color we got. I felt so humiliated at that moment. And I believe at that time, God gave me faith to stand right there and just say, I'm not going to talk to Darnell. Like, let me just talk to you. Let me get to know you. Because as an elder, as a Christian, it is shameful when you think, I can only reach out to people who look, think, and act like me. Now, as far as Darnell... I don't know whatever happened with that guy. I didn't get to meet him. I don't think anybody talked to him. It was just, he was by himself. But God forbid there be a Darnell in our church or on our job. And I'm not just talking about race. It could be someone from another country, someone of a different type that we just see as that person over there. I'm so thankful that when I came to Grace City, it was a completely different experience. I was brokenhearted. I was wounded. And I remember, I don't even remember what Pastor Rob preached, clearly because I thought he was in. <laughs> but I was so broken inside. And I remember Pastor Danny talking to me right in the back of the room. If he had hugged me, I would have broke down and cried. It had nothing to do with the fact that he's white, I'm black, he's shorter, I'm tall. It, it, it didn't have to do anything with that. What it had to do was that there was one blood-bought, blood-washed believer who came to another and said, I'm just going to talk to you. Be like Pastor Danny. I just kind of endorsed him, and he's blushing. Um, but that is who we are to be. Don't put your faith in anything but Jesus' ability to make us able to reach out and reach the broken. That was a good amen. Resist the urge to embrace the Gnosticism of these cultures. That says, if you don't know my experience, you can't minister to me. I've even heard some church planning networks, and I'll just put it out there, that'll say, if you're a white pastor, you shouldn't pastor yet. You should spend some time under a black. And if you're a Latino pastor, here's what you should do in this neighborhood. Now, I am all for contextualization and learning where you're going to plant a church. But if the, if the mandate for planting a church has to do with you spending some time under an ethnicity, Jesus is getting pushed out the door. God is not going to give his glory to Gnosticism, intersectionality, or a hashtag, or all lives matter, or black lives matter, at the end of the day, he's going to get glory for creating change. And I'm not arguing against whatever hashtag you might like on Twitter, but at the end of the day, you got to be more Christian than you are black, more Christian than you are white, more Christian than you are Latino. At the core of who we are is Jesus, and that's it. 
And as soon as something comes before the Christian, you lose the Christian. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus something is not Jesus. And so God help us to be at a place where we believe God can use us. I'm going to move on, but I just want to read this quote from you. There's a book called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul Tripp. Let me just read you this quote he writes about our effectiveness in being able to be used by God. He says, The good news of the kingdom is not freedom from hardship, suffering, and loss. It is the news of a redeemer who has come to rescue me from myself. His rescue produces change that fundamentally alters my response to these inescapable realities. The redeemer turns rebels into disciples, fools into humble listeners. He makes cripples walk again. In him, we can face life and respond with faith, love, and hope. And as he changes us, he allows us to be a part of what he is doing in the lives of others. As you respond to the Redeemer's work in your life, you can learn to be an instrument in God's hands. I think that if we struggle to see how God can use us, it's because we don't see ourselves as instruments in God's hands. We see ourselves as cripples in our community's hands. Because the fact of the matter is, if emotions and memories were body parts, all of us would have been crawling in here today. It's so easy to hide our trauma when you come in. Have you ever come in on Sunday, especially at Great City, Pastor Rob talked to you and you just lie to him because he's always happy? And he's just like, how are you? And you're just like, yeah, I'm great, man. The Lord is good. And you know you're not really that good. You just argued with your spouse in the parking lot. You don't feel great. You didn't have coffee. You wanted to get here on time because I used to rush to get a seat in the back and then they moved the chairs. And that was just really uncomfortable for me. Um, Maturity in Christ is getting to a place where you can have the hard conversation and say, no, I'm not okay, but I know God is working in my life. God is not waiting for you to get over your trauma before he uses you. He uses you right in the middle of it. That is a great thing. That is a hopeful thing because I feel like I'm a lifelong project. My wife is at home saying, amen. I need grace, but I can give it while I wait for it. And so as we move on, next we, we see first that we have hope that God can use us because he sanctifies the broken to reach the broken. But then next, God supplies power to the church as the church supplies connection to the people. Look at verse 4. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Walk. Um, what's really important, if you want to understand this, this miracle, this is the first recorded miracle we know of. The reason Luke records this miracle is because this miracle leads to a sermon that leads to persecution. Every time God does something big and unleashes power, it is always to give revelation. God doesn't just do miracles so he can be like, look, I did miracles, now you'll believe. You never see people believing just because of a miracle. Be careful of preachers that just tell you, like, God did something awesome, and now all these people believe. If there's not the preaching of the gospel, I don't know if it came from God. And so he, he does this thing, but Peter begins to preach, beginning at verse 11, and, and he gives a verse that I think is instructive on what's happening in verse 4. Um, it says in verse 16, and by his name, this is Peter preaching, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and that the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. In other words, as Peter and John come to the temple, they had no inclination to heal somebody, but Jesus did. They came for prayer, God came for healing. Jesus, by the Spirit, gives Peter and John faith to encounter the lame man. 
literally what God is doing is not just um, um, being the object of faith. He's giving faith at that moment. This is a great thing because when you're in Christ, sometimes you're wondering, God, how can I serve you? And what God is saying to you, just abide in my word because if the word abides in you, you're going to do the stuff I call you to do. But it's just going to be when I tell you to do it. Sometimes God will, will interrupt your plans and you'll have it all figured out. Here's how the whole year is going to go. We're going to go here. I'm going to get this job and save up this much. And God completely reroutes you so that you can know it's coming from him and not your own self that he is going to be glorified in your life, and you are not going to glorify yourself. And so that's what he does. Peter in verse 4 is not the Peter of verse 1. Peter and John look because Christ has put in his heart, reach out to this man. And as you see, he, he, he moves and he fixes attention on him. And in verse 7, it says he took him by the right hand. And so Peter is doing things that is, is really risking his credibility. He's stepping out and he's grabbing this person rather than just saying, get up and walk. He's, he's reaching down and grabbing him. And the man, the text is clear. That man had no faith to be healed whatsoever. Sometimes, whether it's on our job, our community, or just even in our own family, we've got to have faith on behalf of other people. You can't let someone else's unbelief shape how you see them and how you see God in their life. You got to be able to trust that God knows best and he can work. He can save. He can heal. Your assignment this week is simply this. Dwell in the word of God. Colossians 3.16 says this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now that we're in quarantine, what are you going to do this summer to grow in your faith? How are you going to take it to the next level in your time in the Word? Maybe you'll memorize a chapter. Uh, I, I like courses online from Simeon Trust. You can learn different parts of the Bible. Whatever it is, be an expositor in your own home. Be an expositor in your marriage. Lead your family in truth. Husbands could have said amen. It would have been great. You would have got a lot of points, but you guys didn't. Feel convicted. Types <laughs> of spiritual cripples. Verse 8 says, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. This is really, really, really important. Because if you know Scripture very well, you know that in Luke, we see that Jesus passed this point a couple times. That when Christ was in his earthly ministry, he probably walked past this man quite a few times. And yet it was in his purpose not to heal him then, but to heal him through Peter and John. Because this man had become such a fixture that when he got up and walked, everybody was going to know, that's the crippled guy. Like in my neighborhood when I was growing up, we didn't have cripples. We just had winos. And it was like you knew, like if you watch Good Times, Ned the Wino, every neighborhood in the hood has a Ned the Wino. And it's like imagine if you saw Ned the Wino not laying on the ground wearing messed up clothes, smelling like liquor. Uh, um, here he is jumping up and leaping. Here, here's what we see. God's timing is absolutely as perfect as his will. There are broken things in our world and our culture that God has there, sees it, and purposes it for his glory. If you're a believer, understand there's nothing you've encountered or will encounter that God hasn't sifted through his love first. He looks at it and says, I'm going to use this in your life. There is nothing pointless or needless in your life or in your experience. There's a pastor named Ramel Williams. I love how he says, your watch and God's clock are always out of sync. 
God never moves on your timeline. God is always up to something. But then look, it says, and when you get to verse 10, it says they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement. Two different words there. One of them is they are astonished. The other is they are spellbound. They can't process what is going on. And if you ask yourself, what about this miracle blows their mind? You would say that God has done something abnormal. I would say you're probably wrong. That's what I thought at first, so we were all together. What God has done in their sight is caused them for the first time, maybe ever, to see what normal looks like. In our culture, we are so used to brokenness and people calling what is evil righteous that here is God restoring a man to, to what he intended for a man to be. God is creating normal and it shocks them, and they don't have a category to place it in. But also look at God's heart in this because the people that, that Peter is about to preach to, these are the same people who just a couple weeks ago were screaming, crucify Jesus. So the miracle is to give hope to people that hated Jesus. These are the same people who said we would rather have Barabbas. We would rather have somebody off the most wanted list than have this prophet Jesus. And, and yet, that's what he does. When Peter preaches, he lets us know that the people who are watching this miracle in verse 13, they're the ones who delivered over and denied Jesus. Verse 14, they denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer. Verse 15, they killed the author of life. Think about this. These are God's enemies that God is coming to love and show compassion to. If Jesus does that with his enemies, enemies, what should we do with ours? What should we do with the people who are on the other side of the political spectrum from us? What do we do with the people who tweet different hashtags than we tweet? What should we do if you're BLM and they're All Lives Matter? What, should, what would you do if your neighbor is Blue Lives Matter and you feel a different way about that? Well, what Jesus would do is he would love them and expect absolutely nothing in return. And if you're a Christian, let me tell you, because I always hear Christians say, that's just not my ministry. You're, listen, your rights were crucified 2,000 years ago. You've got no rights. You belong to him. You've been purchased by him. And the good news for you is the same as the good news for this man who had sat in the temple, and you saw in the text he got up and went in the temple. Here's what's so good about it. Jesus is the temple. He's the temple that comes to us. He's the temple that enables us to get up and walk and have fellowship with him and one another. When you leave here today, understand that God has called you and consecrated you to go with him. You are someone's burning bush out there. I'm not saying you're Jehovah, but if you read Acts chapter 2 and you see the fire falling, what is happening? You're seeing Mount Sinai, in a sense, all over again, though. And you see God making his tabernacle with people and not just a place you go. And so now you can be the church Monday through Saturday, not just Sunday. That was a good place for amen. Somebody should have said right on. Y'all got to work on this. It's, 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 I know it's weird because you got a mask on. You look like Bane. You're not breathing right. But you've got to practice this kind of stuff. You got to get it there. And so lastly, and I'm done. Be careful how you pray, Maranatha. I hear a lot of people pray and tweet and post about, come, Lord Jesus, come. And I think if, the truth, if we're truthful, sometimes we pray that because we're tired of what we see, but we haven't done anything about what we see. Because before you pray, come Lord Jesus, end all this suffering, make sure you pray, come Lord Jesus through your church and help me to do what I was put here to do. Because when you're asking Jesus to put an end to all this suffering, you're also asking him to begin the suffering of those who reject him right now. The day will come when you won't have a chance to evangelize, to share your faith, to love on people who are God's enemies. So before you pray, Lord, come, 
I want the, the Lord to come. But make sure your heart is in a place where if you don't come, use me, please. Save someone through me. Help me to be prepared to share my faith. And with that said, he said, bring it on home. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father and our God, Lord, we pray that you would give us the hope that we can bring hope to Philadelphia, that we can serve you and know you deeper. Bless us in our ministry and our calling, Lord. Have your way in us this week. We thank you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.